Hello everyone and welcome to the next page. I'm Natalie Alexander and this is the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. Today we have for you a conversation on two fascinating and critical subjects that are also of course interconnected. Social justice and leadership, especially women in leadership. We're joined by Caroline Kendi-Robb, who currently serves as a senior advisor at the African Centre for Economic Transformation. But before that, she held a range of roles, including as the Secretary General of Care International, the Executive Director of the Africa Progress Panel, and also roles at the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and in the Gambia in the field of community development. Plus more, we have a link to her Twitter account in this description if you'd like to find out more about Caroline and her work. She's dedicated much of her life to fighting social injustice and to supporting women in leadership and how we see and define leadership. So in this conversation, she shares with our director, Francesco Pisano, her experiences and her knowledge in these areas particularly as they relate to the changing environment we're experiencing today, which is bringing lots of complexities and different challenges to the table. You'll also hear stories from her time working in these different organizations, as well as how she sees leadership personally, including women in leadership, and what she thinks is ahead for us as we continue to question, debate, and explore the idea of leadership today and in the future. I hope you enjoy this episode as a place of learning or inspiration. Here we go. Welcome everyone on the next page. We're joined over Skype by Caroline Kenderob today for a conversation on social justice, social injustice. Caroline is an expert in this field. She's currently senior advisor at the African Center for Economic Transformation, but she's been on a number of very high important posts around the world in headquarters, and she has a very interesting career in this area. So we're going also to pick her brain on a couple of issues relating to women and leadership and women in leadership. But before we go into the core of today's episode, Caroline, I would like you to introduce yourself to our audience with your own words. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, as you mentioned at the moment, I'm a senior advisor with the Africa Center for Economic Transformation. And uh, yes, thanks for inviting me. It's, it's a real pleasure. So, Caroline, let's talk about social justice. Actually, the first time you and I met, we had a chat quite in depth about the thing. And I was left with the feeling that what we should be talking about is rather social injustice. So you've been exposed to working in the area of social social justice with large organizations in many parts of the world and in many positions. So I would like to, maybe for you to tell our audience, what is that we mean by social justice? What is the fight that you've been doing for a lifetime? What is the state of the art in this area of knowledge around the world today? Right, well, thanks, that's a, a very challenging uh, question. And I, and I think what, what is the state of the art around the world today and, and, and how, is it, you know, how is it transformed? What are the changes that we see? And you know, this is, this is a question that taxes many people, have things got better 
or have things got worse with regards to social justice globally? And, you know, I, I would like to just maybe just touch on four points related to that question very briefly. And just uh, remembering that to, to capture a balanced narrative on that question is really quite hard. And when we look at the world over the last 35 years since I've been working, which is quite a lot of years, if you look at a lot of statistics, it's definitely got better. We see significant reductions in poverty, significant reductions in maternal mortality or infant mortality rates, less people dying in conflicts and wars, great strides in, in technology that are bringing improvement in people's lives on a daily basis. So this is, this is like the, the positive side of, of the balance sheet. But the more negative side is that we, we still have a long way to go with regards to issues of social justice. The world we know, we live it, is, is very fragile. Change around us is incredibly rapid. I mean, people talk about the fourth industrial revolution. They talk about technologies transforming the world, but at a frightening speed. And what we're faced with is, is massive complexity and huge inequalities and, and huge discrimination that still exists in so many parts of the world. And really, really the, the, the third point I want to raise is, is really what are we seeing with regards to these, these threats? These threats are completely different than we've ever seen before. I mean, basically, they're threats to humankind if, if, if we really want to be kind of frank about what we're facing now that we weren't facing 35 years ago. And for example, climate change, uh, COVID-19 and future epidemics, you know, the nature of emergencies themselves is actually changing. But we also have a, a leadership challenge. How are our countries governed? How are our organizations and private sector governed? Do we have governing and governance structures that are fit for purpose? And finally, my fourth point, which I want to end on, is really, you know, we need to question what we value and what kind of world do we want to live in? And, and to me, these are very profound questions that are facing us today as we face these different threats. Do we want extreme governance surveillance or citizen empowerment? Um, do we want nationalist isolation or global solidarity? These, those are the questions actually that were raised by Yuval Noah Harari, who is just a fantastic writer. And that really resonated with me. And really thinking about this and, and stepping back is, as we see so much complexity, some of the answers are simplicity. And so there's a lot of simple things that we can do that are, are very important when we think about what do we value. For example, kind and caring leadership, empathy and compassion. These are things that we can find within. So thank you for this introduction to, to the subject. And I do agree with you that there are trends today that redefine the idea of social justice. The, perhaps the idea of the, the values that has been present throughout our, our civilization. And that is something that we can find in all phases of the evolution of the, the quest for, for a certain amount of social justice overall as civilization, but also in different in different systems, in different cultures. I wanted to ask you, you have spent most of your professional time in, in this area. So I wanted to ask you, what is the difference now? When, when you joined 
back in the uh, 80s, end of the 80s or, or mid 80s, then you, you started with the private sector. You were you were in Africa at that time, you went into Gambia. And so you must have a sort of a bird eye view of this trajectory of how things changed, apart from the, the, the trends that you mentioned. What was different then that doesn't happen anymore today in the way humans, governments, governance approaches the idea of social justice? Well, when I when I first started, you're right, I started in the private sector at Marks and Spencer and got four years management experience. But I, I started there because I was told I needed a, a skill to take overseas before I went and did any work. And I actually started with voluntary service overseas, which is a British based charity, which is similar to Peace Corps. And the idea of voluntary service overseas was that they took young people from Great Britain and they distributed them throughout the world to help develop communities. And we would go with our with our skills. Now, <laughs> that is something that people would not think was a good idea anymore. And, and thankfully, voluntary service overseas has changed dramatically. And for me, that's it illustrates how people were framing the problem. They thought that people in the United States, people in Europe, people in the United Kingdom had the answers to the problems in Africa, and that's really not the case. So here I went out as a 24-year-old with my four years management experience from Marks and Spencer to live in a very small community, a very small village um, in the Gambia along the Atlantic coast, to work with women's groups on a small artisanal fishes development project. And I lived in a small, you know, mud hut. There was no running water, no electricity. But, you know, who benefited most? And I would argue that I benefited the most. I don't know what we were thinking that you could send these young people out to do development, whatever that is. But for me, it was a very profound learning experience. And I still, I still have that with me now. Whenever I work in any context, in any situation throughout my career, I'm always thinking, how will that impact the community? How will that impact people living in the village where I had my, my experience? And so, that, so that's why uh, yeah, things are very different now. And so that that was a forming experience, I imagine. And this is something we have in common because when I started my professional career, I was sent to Africa to, to work. It's not the only thing we have in common because also my father was also a fighter jet pilot. And so and we'll talk about that later in yeah, terms yeah. of leadership. Uh, there are a couple of uh, interesting points I wanted I wanted to raise with you, but let's stay there. So you, here you are formed somehow by that seminal experience of being young in Africa, seeing things. And you said it yourself, you know, still today, when I think about framing a problem, I think, you know, would that, how it does compare with reality? What is the impact? Now, I wanted to ask you, I know that you're working in UNDP, you work for the World Bank, you work for the IMF. So these are the giants who are there to operate on this terrain and basically lead the front on social justice. And I wonder... How do large organizations of that size learn like you learned in the Gambia? What is the equivalent for this organization? How did you navigate through your career in this big organization? Did you recognize some of the values were still there, you could operate, or was it harder because you had this exposure to the reality of the small village 
and you could compare what you were doing in terms of policy with the reality back there. Exactly. So if I, if I start with the World Bank, I, I actually was brought into the World Bank to work in the, the poverty unit. Now, the World Bank in 1995 was a very strongly focused economic institution, right? And I came in as a, somebody with a very strong social background. I'm, I'm not an economist. I understand bits of economics, but I am not an economist. My framing is very much from a a geography, a social perspective. But I was brought into the bank as a short-term consultant and because in the Gambia we did what was called participatory poverty assessments where we would do surveys and talk to people in communities and and ask them how how do they define poverty. And, and people in the Gambia would say, well, there's lots of ways, you know, we define poverty. You know, it's it's access, it's dignity, it's respect, it's, you know, so, you know, just to having a network and friends and working together. And there was a whole lots of d- different definitions of poverty. And I was brought into the bank to work in, in that area. But uh, even though there were a few people in the bank who were trying to, trying to change the bank at the time, and I became part of that group, to be able to see that poverty wasn't just an economic definition requiring economic solutions. It was actually multidimensional, requiring multiple solutions. And it was political. And yet when I first went to the bank, I had this book by an author called Friedman, and I had it on my desk. (laughs) It was taught empowerment. That was the title of the book. It was a fantastic book. And I was told to take it off my desk. I said, no, you can't have that book in the bank. We're not a political institution. You, you have to take it home. So, so the, you know, the bank went through its own uh, transformation. And I worked with this group to, to redefine how we saw poverty, combining, you know, very robust analytical work, which was quantitative, with very robust analytical work, which was qualitative, and at the time, the bank were going, we don't want to talk to poor people because we are the experts. We're the experts. We, the World Bank, we are the experts. And I'm going, well, that's not how I understand it. So it was a it was a long journey. And, you know, and in the end, the bank has changed considerably. Um, one of the big changes in the bank was Jim Wolfenson. And he was just amazing. He came to the bank and he said, you know, we need, a, we need a new kind of vision of what we're doing. And his vision was a world free of poverty. And that gave us some hooks into this institution with economics in its DNA. So that, that was really one way in which we worked in the bank. And the second way was around the East Asia financial crisis. And when that hit the world, people ran out and said, we've got this huge financial crisis. And what we need to do is have these massive financial solutions and financial packages. And um, what I did with with a colleague who said to me, oh, we need to get to the communities, a brilliant man. He said, we need to get to the communities and find out what's happening in East Asia. So I went to the communities and we did a lot of participatory exercises working with the communities. And we immediately saw that this was not just a financial crisis. Indeed, it was a social crisis. And it was hitting communities immediately. And they were pulling the children out of school. They were eating less meals. In fact, we heard a lot of reports of young girls being sent into prostitution to be able to cope because the money just stopped. And so you had a huge impact on social capital as well. And, you know, this was the kind of 
work that was very hidden in the World Bank. They again, it wasn't seen as robust, and but we had to find ways of enabling these messages to influence World Bank policy. And in fact, the our work was presented to to Jim Wolfenson with the help of Mark Mallet Brown, and who used to work for the UNDP, and was working at the World Bank at the time. And on presentation to to Jim of this work, he said, "This is exactly." what I need. I can see there is another crisis. And at the World Bank annual meetings, he made a speech. He said, there is another crisis in East Asia, and we need to respond both with economic and fiscal solutions and social solutions at the same time. So the, the bank can change very quickly in certain parts of the bank. And that, that was the kind of process that we went through to try and change some parts of the bank. And indeed, at that time, I was already working for the UN, and we could see that there was this, you know, migration of beliefs and this effort made by a certain group in the bank to look at a, a moralistic definition of what is poverty and where does, you know, the financial world begins to have an impact and ends to have an impact. Uh, that impact doesn't reach everywhere and everyone and depending on on the type of uh, continent the type of crisis they were handling i did see that myself uh, from my observation that in the un i was at that time in the humanitarian sector so we were basically you know running emergency operations and then leaving these people to their fate of resuming the path to development one way or the other. And in most cases, that way was just, you know, going back in time, uh, 30 years, 20 years, 15 years of development when they were lucky. And uh, that begged a sort of quest for a moralistic approach to what is poverty, what is development. Even, even so, for many, many years, almost, almost a decade, there was this difference of perspective between UNDP and the World Bank on these on these topics, and I think that that is reflected in many global agenda aspects, including the MDGs. And in a way, it's only now with Agenda 2030 that we have come to an overall agreement on what is that we're talking about. And in, in that context, I wanted to to ask you: you've seen this from very, very close, because you were working this, in this organization, you were in the IMF, in the World Bank, UNDP itself. But then you, you also held an amazing position in terms of being able to observe things, because you were part of the Africa Progress Panel that was set up by Kofi Annan. And I just wonder, what did you see then when, when you put this sort of, let's say, the spectacles of the Africa Progress Panel, what did you see that was different? I know I was uh, lucky and privileged to work with Kofi Nan on a, on a daily basis, in fact, for nearly six years after he had left the UN. And I headed up what was called the Africa Progress Panel. And the idea of the Africa Progress Panel was to change policies in across Africa and of course, globally, because any policy that's affecting Africa often has a global link or a, a global kind of, you know, problem that, that needs to be pushed. And so a lot of the, the challenges in Africa were also challenges globally. And, and that is when I, I worked with a, a lot of global leaders and I learned, <laughs> I learned from the best. And uh, he was really amazing. He, 
for me, he was he embodied multilateralism. He embodied cooperation and solidarity, and you know, all, he was a man of truly high moral values, and and he was a man who also was able to see clearly through great complexity. And I learned a lot from him in, in that respect as well. And we worked very, very hard for him, of course, because, you know, when you're with somebody who's so great, you you want to also enable and, and help and do your, your absolute best. And so we, we worked on a lot of issues. We worked on hidden issues often, you know, issues that needed the spotlight put upon them from global tax and transparency, issues around illicit financial flows, issues around corruption. And, and we would write every year a very, a very serious, but a, a report that we were able to put in whatever we thought was important because we didn't have any institutional constraints. Whereas at the same time, uh, I worked very closely with the World Bank and the UN and the greatest thinkers when I was at the Africa Progress Panel. So we benefited from this really high level, high quality cooperation from many people to produce this report that was very cutting edge and, and could say almost things that w- what often would be needed to be said. And, you know, uh, Kofi Annan had access to everybody, he had access to all global leaders. And we, we spoke a lot to global leaders. He had access to private sector leaders and he and he worked brilliantly with them all. And ultimately, what we were doing was we were putting a big issue into the global policy space. It, it, it could be around climate change. It could be around energy, energy access, really, really exciting area. It, it could be around oil, gas and mining, super controversial. But we would put them out there and with these, you know, very important to get high level data right. So you have your top line data and at the same time, the evidence to back it up. And so that was out in the public domain, very high level. And at the same time, parallel processes, we would be doing discrete interventions. And so we would be working with the oil, gas and mining, uh, the heads of those companies, we were working with them. And at one point, uh, one of the reports we did was picked up by the Vatican and the Vatican brought together all the heads of the oil, gas and mining companies and they went to the Vatican and they discussed our, our report and they they started off by saying, well, we're pretty, we're pretty shocked and angry with this report <laughs> because it says all these things. But at the same time, we can see this, this report is suggesting a lot of solutions and we want to get there. So, so it was like holding up a mirror to, to many of the leaders in this area. And we were able to make a lot of progress around that. And, and we'd had a similar approach to these other issues that we, we actually presented on a yearly basis. So when you look back, do you think we're doing better? There's been progress on social justice globally? Well, I, you know, I think, like I said, it's very, very hard. There's no one measure of, of social justice. So, and I think it's super interesting. I think we can see these incredibly important declines in poverty, declines in maternal mortality rates is so, so important. Infant mortality, child mortality is declining, the increase in life expectancy. We can see all of that. Technology is giving different people voice that they've never had before. So we, we have, a, a, there's so many factors to this. And yet, 
at the same time, we have a situation where there are threats to humanity, whether that be climate change, whether that be pandemics, epidemics. There are just so many areas of fragility and what they require is global leadership and leaders who are different. We need different leaders nowadays because we're living in a very different world. And it's a world that has changed so rapidly around us that it is totally different from when I was 24 and first went to the Gambia. It is a totally different world. I really, you know, look around and I can see some brilliant leaders and I can see some leaders who are still thinking the world is the same as it was 35 years ago. And leadership has to change. And we need to see more women in leadership positions. We have some fantastic leaders at the moment. And, you know, like the Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern, who's a really compassionate, empathetic leader. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of, of Germany. We can criticise all these leaders, but at the same time, I've actually met Angela Merkel. She She's... She's a lovely, kind, warm person, right? And you don't get that impression when you see the negative press that she gets. Um, you know, we've got brilliant leaders in Iceland, Finland, Norway, Erna Solberg, she's brilliant. And, and they are leading in a very different way. The, the macho male leader is, I don't know how long they can last, and often you can see a disconnect between the young people coming through and the leaders. And, and we see this the world over. We see this in my country. We can see this in other countries. We see it a lot in Africa, too, where the young people are saying, we want to live in a different world. We care about the environment. We care about social issues. We care about injustice. We care about inequality. We care about discrimination. And I think that, and I hope that, will change leadership. We have all our problems that are interconnected, whether we like it or not. We live in a globalized world. Our problems, our solutions, our progress are all interconnected, and leaders need to be able to think in that way. So this is a brilliant segue into maybe the last part. It's a good point here to, to, to start talking about leadership. You've been in touch with giant leaders, uh, well, you mentioned a few, and of course, Kofi Annan uh, stands out of the lot because of his um, human characteristics and not only as a leading characteristics in terms of being the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, first and foremost, but also leading other, other organizations. But you've been also working for the World Economic Forum. So you have had your lot of encounters with these leaders, etc. So let's talk about leadership a little bit. As we record, we are in the middle of the, the COVID-19 crisis. We're in the middle of a pandemic. This podcast will be, will be there, available to our audience for years to contextualize it. As we record, we're recording from our respective apartments, and that's why we're using, we're using Skype, because we are confined. So what does that tell us about, about leadership? Well, my opinion is that global leadership is certainly a very rare commodity right now, and it's been for a while. A national leadership is something different. We know that there is more of that around. And in that area, you mentioned 
in particular, those those women who have recently come to leadership and seem indeed to respond much, much better to the expectations of younger people, whether men or women. They also display typical signs of that kind of emotional intelligence, intra and interpersonal intelligence that is always being required by a leader, but not so easily displayed by the typical male leaders that history has uh, made us used to. Now, I think that what is different is that you just said it, and I agree with you, that the world has changed dramatically. So we're really at a beginning of a new era, which means logically that there is an old era that is ending. In my opinion, it has ended already, which is there is a delay in realization and theorization, but it has ended. And I was talking with university students about how the new multilateralism going forward has to be born before we lose control of what the old multilateralists seem to have partly fixed and greatly caused in terms of global problems and climate change is one of them, but there are others. So here, here we are having this conversation and you have been in this for many years. You've, you've been next to these sacred monsters of leadership, the old way, and you're a woman and you're a leader, etc. So you can tell us a little bit about what are the things that are really defining leadership for you as a woman. And you can see the difference because you've been working with and for male leaders of, let's say, the previous era. And then if you could also spend some time to give maybe a couple of tips to those women leaders and young aspiring women aspiring to be leaders so that they can you know, find direction in this uh, time of change. Yes, thank you. I mean, you're right, you're right. So uh, you, the world has changed so much and, and we definitely need a different type of leadership. And at this precise moment in time, it's difficult to know which way the world will go, to, to be quite frank. And, and there are so many different people commenting on that and, and, and fascinating views. Some people think nation states will retract and become more nationalistic with a leader that is a populist leader that is just focusing on their one country. Others say this has to be a wake-up call for all leaders to collaborate globally. And in a way, uh, this pandemic, it, it actually reveals that we're all interconnected. It's hard to retreat into your own nation state just the example of COVID-19 is that none of us are safe until everyone is safe. The virus can come back and in, in, to any country at any time, and, and therefore we have to uh, cooperate globally. So, so for me, that's very important and, and does require a, a different type of collaboration. And, and there are many brilliant male leaders um, and who are trying to collaborate in many brilliant women leaders who are trying to collaborate. But the old-fashioned image of a leader, I think, has been questioned. But I would also like to say that as a woman leader myself, it's still a bumpy road, to be completely frank, because when people think of leaders, they don't think immediately of women. 
right? They they think of a man. <laughs> so so and then when they think of leaders, they don't think of words like kind, caring, compassion, empathy. And if people think of those words, they would have been framed, if we're looking a little bit backwards, as a weakness. These characteristics have not been valued. And indeed, if you show these values, you can be attacked as you are seen as as weak. And I would argue that this is the very heart of good leadership, of these characteristics, alongside characteristics of being able to make decisions, of being able to be strategic, of being able to mobilize your team, of being able to get a team that works together for a common collective vision. Of course, those are all extremely important parts of leadership. But just on that issue of where we stand as women leaders and how it's still a little bit of a bumpy road is that there are more women leaders now than ever before at some levels. Right. So we have a global leadership that influences leadership all the way down. So at some levels, we now have more women in leadership positions. And I think that's very threatening to some people in some places. Right. They think, oh, that's not what I think a leader looks like. And, 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 and it's uncomfortable for some people in some situations. But I would also really, really question, do we have the right governance in place? Do we have the right governing bodies? Because when a lot of times what we're seeing, and Christine Lagarde, the head, she was the head of the IMF, and now she's the head of the European Central Bank, brilliant woman, wonderful inspiration to people like myself, and actually Kristalina Georgieva, who uh, was my boss at the World Bank and now is the head of the IMF. So we, we have these great role models. Ngozi is another one. It's fantastic role models, but they're very few. But Christine Lagarde, what she said is when organizations are in crisis, they will bring in the woman. So you bring in the woman and what a lot of women, not all, but a lot of women, because of the way we frame the issues, we think, okay, we, we want to make this organization work and we'll bring about change and we, we bring about, the, we have these characteristics of empathy and caring and, and sharing and, and we bring about change. But then often, and it's called the glass cliff, a lot of people, a lot of the, my, my colleagues and my friends, after they've gone through, brought, brought into a, an organization in crisis, they've turned the organization around and then they're fired and they're blamed for the problems they inherited. And that's why I question do we have the right governance structures in place? Because that shouldn't be happening. What should be happening is when women come in to change these organizations around, because subliminally, like Christine Lagarde says, more women are brought into organizations with these challenges, failing organizations or challenged organizations. So when they're brought in, they should be supported. And the blaming is is counterproductive. So really it's, it's saying, what kind of governance structures do we have? As we are on this front line of, of women in leadership positions, what can we do to support other women who are coming up, who will hopefully get into these leadership positions? And, you know, the glass cliff is super interesting, but it's very hidden. These challenges that a lot of women are having are very hidden. 
So I think we do need to question the the whole context within which uh, leadership is situated at the moment, right from the top and coming all the way down. And it's indeed a question of governance, but uh, it's also a question of corporate culture. And culture is what determines the environment in which a leader is able or unable to operate. So if I understand what you're saying is the glass cliff is, is the phenomenon whereby failing organizations call on women leaders who may or may not be rapidly fixing the organization and then they get fired. Basically, they do the job, the, the organization gets better and then these women lose the jobs or they use as scapegoats. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so it was. It comes from some researchers who looked at the phenomenon in the private sector. So they could be failing organizations or they could be organizations that have multiple challenges, budget challenges, or just different issues that, that would be very challenging. So Christine Lagarde says that in a time of crisis, they're in a crisis, and these researchers have done the research and shown that in a time of crisis, organizations often bring in women. Now, many different organizations that then, you know, there's multiple different ways in which the next steps are taken. But what these researchers discovered is that often women will turn these organizations around, put new structures in place, fix the problems, bring the organization out of crisis, but then they are let go. And that's the thing that's so curious, and that's why it's called the glass cliff. Okay, so that is pretty clear. But there is one thing, one thing that I think remains in the positive balance of this is that organizational cultures are very slow to change. But once the change has begun, then it will. It's very difficult to stop the, the growth of a culture that has tasted empathy, collaboration working across walls and barriers. And there are many, many examples in corporate organizations that go to show that from airlines to giants in the IT. There are many stories out there. I cannot use brands now. But conversely, large organization, non-profit organization and, and UN organizations are still lagging behind this generating their own culture that empowers women leaders until it doesn't really matter if it's a woman or a man because the kind of leader that the organization is able to, to basically put at the top. So I think, just to end on a positive note, is I think the culture is changing around the corporate world. It's also a little bit in international organization. Our own Secretary General Guterres is actually a champion of empowering women in leadership. Being a man himself, being a former politician, he sees the issue clearly and he's very, very articulate and vocal about it. And that is a sign at the very top of the UN organization. There you go, the cultural change is here. You just have to continue and, and, and push it that way. So I am very confident that that is happening. Where I'm less confident is the is the pace at which it's happening. It may be too late. Once we have all, you know, put order on deck, then we may be, you know, run into 
into the the coastline already. So that is that is really the issue that is in front of us. Not only with this pandemic, but also with climate change. The pandemic will be gone. Climate change will be much harder to to solve. So I was wondering, you as a, as a woman and a parent, you you have three daughters. You told me, and that is a huge leadership challenge. Parenting is a constant daily challenge in, in leadership. And uh, this is something that I don't do very much on my podcast. I know there are a number of guests that love this question. It's just, you know, can you share your your tips for successful, successful parenting? I would not do that like that, but I would certainly like to hear you draw a parallel between leadership and parenting because the moral courage that it takes in my view, I'm a parent of two as well. It's very, very similar, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. So just to dwell on your first point, and then I'll pick up your second point. So I I do see a change. I do see a change. I think the point that the road is bumpy for women in leadership positions is an important point. And and therefore, my appeal really is that we women leaders, we need to we need to talk, um, and we do. We have fantastic networks, and we have what I would call a lot of networks that are we have put together informally, and we all help each other, right? So, and I think that's very very important, and that's the only way forward is to keep helping each other because the road will be bumpy. We can't sugarcoat this. We're trying to trying to bring about a transformation. Right. And and women leaders are, are not the norm. And so the road will be bumpy. But having said that, I have no doubt that the skills of women leaders will be required even more in tomorrow's world, because tomorrow's world has all these multiple challenges which I've been talking about. And those challenges, the threats to humankind, right, they're enormous challenges and they need people with a multitude of different skills. So we need the male leader with X, Y, Z skills and the female leader with ABC skills. And we need this balance. We need a balanced leadership approach. And I think once we have a better balance, maybe at global leadership and then at all the other levels, these other characteristics will be more valued. So people won't think that they're a weakness. They go, no, that's a strength. I should, I, you know, a lot of male leaders are very kind. They're very caring. They're very empathetic. But we need more of that. And we need all of us to bring those to the table and for those to be valued and seen as, as a strength in leadership, cooperation, solidarity. The, these issues are so important for now. And I believe that the, the world, I believe the world is going to move in that direction. We already see it, but change is challenging and it can be a rocky road. So I think that's what a lot of us are are experiencing. But we have also experienced a lot of fantastic leadership positions. And that's, that's, you know, I've been lucky. I've had a lot of incredible support and incredibly good bosses as well at the same time. And I, I've, you know, in various leadership positions, I've had great networks of of women and men, and, and I think that's absolutely vital. So yes, yeah, so, so we we have these amazing networks of women, and we're absolutely, totally always encouraging other women to to get into leadership positions. It's it's important for for the space that we're managing. It's important for the bigger space, and it's important globally. 
around uh, leadership and parenting and moral courage. I like that. <laughs> so, yes, I, I have three girls. The, the the little one is 13, the middle one is 15, and the, the big one is 18. And, you know, every day, you know, you're reminded that this is a different generation. They frame the world differently. And, you know, to them, issues of, of justice, issues of, of climate and and issues of what kind of world do we want to live in? That is how they see the world, right? That's their number one. I was not, when I was 13, I wasn't thinking about these things. I was playing, I don't know, football with my brothers, for goodness sake. <laughs> so, you know, and, and really, uh, we were not thinking globally at all. So, so I think young people of today are really um, our hope. They're our hope. Because, you know, when you see some of the leaders, it, it's easy to think, oh, that's really very, very challenging what they are doing. But then you look at the youth, the young people, and they are fighting for a better world. So that's why I remain optimistic. But talking about fighting, going back to your days as, as a, when you were very, very young, before teenage, having a father who was a fighter pilot, what what does it mean for for a person to be brought up by someone who risks his life in a cockpit and and does you know strange things like dog fighting and things like that? Yeah, no, he he was a, an amazing character. He was born in the East End of London, very poor, never knew who his father was, and left school when he was fifteen. And then the war came along, and they said, please, we need some people to join the RAF, the, the Air Force. So he joined the Air Force and did very well. And then he came out of it and they, they put these young men through university. And he went through university, went to Imperial College. He did brilliantly. And, you know, he did something very rare in the United Kingdom, which was basically <laughs> transition from social class. <laughs> so he was born in the the lower class and transition to middle class. And that was very, very uh, dramatic for people in those days. So this was a huge kind of social justice issue, as it were. And he he was a, a man of incredible moral values. And he he yes, he took his life in his hands every time he got into that spitfire. And I think he had a profound influence on my life because he had these incredible moral values. And he, he was very brave, but he was very quiet and a very modest person, and a very clever person. And um, my brothers are, are the same. My, my, my middle brother, he works for WHO and, and fights for social justice every single day. And my eldest brother is a, a punk rocker and uh, a musician, and he writes books, but he's a social commentator. And he talks a lot, he's um, in the United Kingdom, on politics and social justice. So my mother was from a very small village in the middle of Scotland and she married this, uh, this man from the lower class and that was a very unusual mix in those days, but they made it work and they fought and they made that marriage work even though there was a lot of opposition against it. So she was an incredible person who was really trying to change things too. And I can see just, just by talking with you, I can see that a lot of that magic mix has been transmitted to you. I don't know your brothers. One of them I heard having a, a live uh, event together with you on social media just recently. But I can see certainly through your words and the way you express yourself that mix has survived. 
Caroline, Ken, Rob, thank you so much for being with us, taking time to be with us on the next page, our podcast that wants to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you.